Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast series from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, that tackles the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today we're looking at how COVID-19 might affect us as GPs and looking at some brain hacks to help us and our patients when things get too much. We'll hear from Judd Brewer, psychiatrist and neuroscientist, who will explain how you can sneeze on someone's brain from anywhere in the world. And we'll also be hearing an interview from Jenny. Yes, I spoke with Monica Shockspana, a senior scholar and medical anthropologist at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, about the role of GPs now and specifically the guilt that we might be feeling if we're not exactly on the front lines. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ, and you've already heard from Jenny. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor uh, based in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I'm a clinical editor for the BMJ. And we've also got on the line. Hi, I'm Nathrit Lada. I am the head of education at the BMJ, and I am a locum GP. So we talked in our, our second episode of the, the podcast series about fear. Um, and I was just thinking since then how, how quickly like lockdown and all these big changes in society have kind of become normal. It's almost mundane. What do you think? Are you feeling the same, Navjoy? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how uh, quickly I feel that we've adapted to this new normal. Or maybe not adapted, that might be the wrong word, or at least just accepted that this is the new normal and are trying to, you know, work with it. I'm always... I don't know, I always just feel struck by how um, just remarkable it is that people are just getting on with it. I know within that everyone has their kind of own struggles and things that they're dealing with, but there does just seem to be this, yeah, like widespread acceptance that this is how it has to be for now. And and alongside that, I think there's, because the, one thing that Jenny's going to talk about with in her interview is about this bystander guilt. So are, are you feeling that you're doing enough? I mean, Jenny, I, I've got this sense that maybe I'm not worthy of all this praise. Uh, uh, so I think I, I appreciate the kind of quick acclimation to a new normal that many people are posting about on social media or talking about. Um, I've noticed that for me personally, I think I'm just feeling really bereft and a bit lonely, um, kind of absent all the social interaction that I used to have on a day-to-day basis um, with my patients, with colleagues in the workplace, um, with other people in my community. And I don't know, it's it's lonely sitting um, at home and working remotely every day, even though that was something I've done part-time for many years. Um, so I, I'm just kind of acknowledging that it's okay to kind of grieve in some ways the loss of the old way that our life was. And as you mentioned, Tom, coupled with that is this real feeling of guilt um, and insecurity about why I'm not doing more or can I be doing more or why haven't I like picked up and flown back to New York City to work alongside some of the people who I trained with who are very much on the front lines um, in New York City. So do, do we need to get your befriender, someone to, to give you a call once a day and, uh, 
I'll just check, check in on you. <laughs> well, it's really funny because, um, I mean, thank you for the offer, but... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't offering. I, I, was, uh, I was going to signpost to someone. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's actually, it's, it's interesting. So I have two kids who I'm very grateful for all the time, but especially now because they provide a lot of social and physical contact that I'm not getting, um, you know, from friends and colleagues that I would have had before, you know, even high fives or hugs from a friend are just very noticeably absent right now. And as challenging as it is for parents to try to work while their kids are at home or trying to work, um, and even be homeschooling at the same time, I'm grateful that, that I have them. Oh. Um, I wanted to mention, because um, you might not be aware of this, Jenny, um, we have this thing every eight o'clock every Thursday, um, all my neighbours stand outside their houses and, and clap for the NHS. Um, it's at seven o'clock in New York City. Oh, is it seven o'clock? Okay. <laughs> Um, how are you finding that enough joy? Because I find it kind of, um, I still cower away in a corner and try and try not to be seen. You don't clap? Well, I, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do because I'm not sure if they're clapping for me. And if they are, then I, I'm slightly embarrassed by that because I'm just sort of doing some prescriptions and I'm having like a, quite an easy <laughs> time at, at, in, in my practice. Um, I thought it was clapping for carers, but you, oh, know, you could be clapping for other people and for your colleagues. But anyway, not to single you out for, for not clapping. I don't want to shame you. Oh, no, on, I feel really bad. This now. podcast. No, no. But um, no, I know what you mean. Like, there's, like, it feels very, like, the first few times I did it, it was really kind of heartwarming. And I think some of that was, you know, this kind of very visible appreciation for all the essential workers who are kind of keeping things going right now. But also, I mean, this sense of, like, oh, there are my neighbours, like the, that kind of social cohesion as well was, I think, you know, it's been really nice to sort of see people when we're all like locked away at home. But I think as time's gone on, and obviously at the time we're recording this, there's still a lot of discussion about, you know, whether um, healthcare staff, people in care homes are getting the equipment they need. It just feels like this kind of gesture of appreciation is beginning to feel a bit more... Um, I don't know, uh, empty is the wrong word because it's really well-meaning, but just that actually what we really need uh, is, not, is probably in addition to this applause and, and appreciation is actually making sure that people have the equipment and the resources that they need to do their jobs. And so, um, yeah, so I, I don't mean to be kind of that cynical about it, but I, I think as time's gone on, that's become quite noticeable to me. Yeah. Yeah, Navjoy, I've been wondering the same, actually. I um, am close friends with an ICU doctor in New York City who is moved by the 7 o'clock clap and cheer and sometimes to tears on her walk home. And at the same time, I know a lot of healthcare workers around the world are asking what their government is doing to help support them, whether that's in terms of helping to make sure there's adequate PPE, whether that's in terms of you know, potentially even paying for childcare, paying for other kinds of support. Um, so when I spoke to Monica Shaxpana at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, she had some good advice and good perspective on thinking about the response to COVID-19 from a health systems perspective, as opposed to just a war being waged in hospitals alone. Thanks, Jenny. 
So just before we hear the interview with Monica, a word from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medical legal advice available 24 seven in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits and medico legal advice. So now it's time for Jenny's interview with Monica Shockspanner. I'm Monica Shockspanner. Uh, I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is uh, at the School of Public Health. I want to ask you about um, some of the psychosocial experiences of healthcare workers who are, for whatever reason, unable to be on the front lines at this moment and what types of things they're experiencing. That's, a, that's an excellent observation um, uh, because everyone's eyes is on the unfolding uh, pandemic. And if you are a trained health professional, your, your sense of self is very much tied up with what you're seeing transpire in other healthcare settings. So there may be a sense of bystander's guilt where uh, you who are trained cannot apply one's uh, skill set uh, and knowledge in, at a time of immense need. Um, but I, I think it's important to sort of break down that bystander's guilt. Um, there is in the sociological study of disasters um, mention uh, and study of a phenomenon called convergence. During disasters, there is a strong desire on the part of everyone, and that includes trained professionals, to move to the epicenter of the disaster in order to render aid. So that's why you will see post-disaster immense amounts of donations, mm -hmm. uh, volunteers mm -hmm. show up at the epicenter after 9-11. Uh, you had people standing in line outside of St. Vincent ready to donate blood. And they self-organized themselves by blood type. And indeed, the UK this week saw an overwhelming number of people respond to the call for volunteers to the NHS. I saw a headline in the New York Times that said volunteers rushing to the aid of New York State are waiting to be deployed, suggesting exactly what you're talking about. So the, so. Uh, that convergence behavior um, can also be part of what is being uh, experienced or, or termed bystanders guilt, bystanders guilt in that there is this uh, impulse to try and help. So, um, so we can sort of frame it less as guilt and more as a strong desire to help um, as, you know, as a function of this convergence behavior. Um, I think, too, that general practitioners and others who feel, um, uh, others who populate portions of the health sector that are not 
um, highly visible right now um, may need to be reminded of their key role in the overall public health and medical response to the pandemic. At the same time that there are heroic efforts being um, conducted in hospital settings to deal with COVID patients who need to be intubated, there are continuing steady state medical needs that have to be attended to um, so that uh, upstream there's the prevention of any acute episodes that would send a, a non-COVID patient to the hospital for care. I think hospitals are a very potent symbol uh, in our societies. These are places mm -hmm. that when, when the lights go out elsewhere, uh, the lights stay on in the hospital. And like mm -hmm. family, they have to take you in. They can't turn you away. So they do play profound symbolic roles in our culture about the delivery of care and the human-to-human -human interactions that are necessary. At the same time, their symbolic potency can obscure the value of non-hospital-delivered care. And thus, we really do have to value the entire health sector and also its critical role in delivering the kind of care that COVID-19 patients and non-COVID-19 patients need. The health sector is comprised of many things, beginning with home health care, which may be delivered by formal or informal uh, uh, people, such as family and friends or, or personal aides and health aides, to dialysis units, um, to methadone clinics, those individual components are absolutely critical to the entire sector. So the sector has to function well as a whole. It means you have to meet steady state medical needs. You have to meet the needs of individuals who have chronic conditions so that they do not experience any acute episode that would send them to the hospital and put additional burdens on an already uh, overburdened workforce. So every healthcare worker um, has his or her role to play, uh, particularly those at, at upstream of the hospitals, mm -hmm. because they're the ones, um, perhaps gatekeeper isn't the right word, but they can help meet the needs of individuals long before mm -hmm. they, have, they may need to uh, show up in the emergency room. Um, that is incredibly reassuring <laughs> to me personally, but I'm sure to so many of our listeners to be reminded of the important role that GPs and primary care doctors play in terms of maintaining the health of the rest of the population that isn't enduring this crisis. Um, I wonder what you think, given that and looking at this kind of as a sector-wide issue. I wonder what you think about um, how important it is to strike a balance in the number of people that are being moved from those outpatient clinics, those outpatient posts, to being redeployed on the front lines. Um, is it possible that those redeployment efforts need to be titrated so that we make sure we have the right balance between 
the people who are remaining in the other areas of the health sector? No, I, I think you're, you've put your finger on a very important strategic issue. Uh, given that the pandemic is, is going to be protracted, um, both now because uh, both now and over time for the coming months, uh, it will be important to uh, protect the resilience of the healthcare workforce as a whole because they're not just needed during the acute response phase. They're going to be needed through, through um, the entire recovery phase. And we can't afford to lose individuals due to burnout. And burnout is going to happen more frequently among a healthcare workforce or portions of it that are redeployed in a hurried fashion, potentially without sufficient training for the types of challenges that will be faced in an acute uh, hospital setting, for instance. So, um, so yes, strategically, it will be important to uh, protect the resilience of the workforce to make sure that we are meeting both steady state needs of a population uh, at the same time that we're uh, meeting the needs of those individuals who have acute uh, illness with COVID-19. So, so loads to digest there. Um, I think in the in the first part of the interview, what I thought was really interesting about the idea of convergence and you know the lines of people you know do- donating blood and. I think I've seen a similar sort of thing in general practice in the UK. Um, there's so much focus on hot hubs and how are we going to see all these millions of patients with, with coronavirus in, in primary care? Um, and I, I've, I've been concerned that we, we're sort of looking in the wrong direction. Um, and the hot hubs we've had so far, mid, mid-April, haven't really been used. Um, and yet we've got all these people with chronic diseases who are not having any chronic disease management right now. Yeah, I think such an important reminder as well that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and that we all have our part to play in kind of um, maintaining and promoting everyone's health, which I'm sure after this initial response, we're going to have to kind of try and gear up to sort of managing managing all of that um, and sort of maintaining that as we go forward. I also thought it was really interesting, this kind of sense that um, people want to contribute, you know, it brings out this strong urge in people initially that you want to play a part and and play a role and, and be involved and I definitely get that you know that sort of resonated with me personally this sense that I feel kind of less anxious about what's going on when I'm working or feeling like I'm contributing in some way um, you know if I'm working in healthcare or if I'm working on an article for the BMJ that tends to be when I feel um yeah, like least at my least kind of worried about what's going on. So I think it's bringing out that kind of need in people too. Um, Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that uh, Monica said that I found most reassuring was just reminding us that all of us have an important role to play. And it's, it's exactly what you're saying, Navjoit, that when we are doing something, whether that's patient care, whether that's ensuring there's good educational content out there, whether that's uh, supporting um, healthcare workers who are in hospitals, 
Um, when we're doing something that feels like we're contributing, even if it's in a small way, it does tend to be um, reassuring. One of the things that Monica said in part of the interview that we didn't have time to play today was just about the cumulative stress that healthcare workers take on as they're dealing with the pandemic. Um, And she talked about things like more hours and more shifts and feeling unsafe um, in the workplace. And that it's really when people are feeling unsafe that their mental health uh, suffers as a result. And it brought me back to this relationship between the health system and its interplay with politics and trying to think about what we can mobilize for and ask for in terms of helping to keep our healthcare workers safe and protect them so that we can be available um, throughout the recovery phase, as Monica said. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, this valorization of like healthcare workers as heroes doesn't leave much space for people to, you know, feel tired or feel burnt out. Mm-hmm. You know, it puts a lot of pressure on people to keep going. So this this leads us perfectly on to, to our second interview, actually. Um, I think that what we just heard there is a lot about the um, the structures and the um, h- how it's not really... It's not, it's not personal, it's political. This is a very important concept it, in feminism. It's, oh, go, tell us more. So, so it's not personal, it's political. Tell us. Yeah, it's not personal, it's political. It means that the things that happen to negatively impact somebody's health are much less to do with their personal attributes and more to do with systems of oppression, hierarchies of power, and structural racism and other aspects of social justice. So if we think that, I really love that concept of it's not personal, it's political. And it reminds me a bit of um, some of the criticisms of resilience training in the UK. You know, people saying, you know, we, we shouldn't be so training doctors to be more resilient. We need to sort the system out to make sure that they're well supported and then they wouldn't be um, burning out all the time. Um and so in this podcast, of course, we, we can't do much about the, the broader um, systems, but, but maybe we can offer some, some help or get some help from experts on um, ways which we can, um, well, shift, shift our ways of thinking. So let's move on to our second interview, which, um, which is with a, a psychiatrist and um, neuroscientist called Judd Brewer. Um, one, thing's I, one thing I've noticed about the coronavirus as a GP is that I'm probably talking to more people about their anxiety about COVID-19 than actually those who have it. Um, and that, that seems to be a, yeah, a much more prevalent problem right now. And certainly one that all of us are dealing with. You know, I think, Navjoy, you've coined this phrase like doom scrolling through the social media feed. And I've noticed that I'm just falling into this awful habit of just constantly checking the news turning on the New York Times app on my phone just before I sleep and then staying up too late. And then I'm it's just a very vicious cycle. And, and, you know, it's not like any of those headlines make me feel better about the world. Oh, I'm doing exactly the same, just like consuming news as a way to kind of try and manage my own fear or, or like applying some certainty to 
this feeling of like anxiety and uncertainty, but in a way that is and would you like some helpful. tips on how to overcome this and feel better and happier and less anxious? Oh, and for those yes, conversations please. with yes, patients please. where you're not quite sure how to help them with their anxiety. Okay. <laughs> and are Definitely. you guys getting this too, where like people are coming to you kind of saying, so what do you think about coronavirus? And when is the social distancing going to stop? And do you really, do you think all the cases are being reported? And I, something about that, like the role that we play in our communities where like we're not necessarily the researchers putting together data. We're not epidemiologists tracking the cases or, or doing contact tracing. Um, but then to be kind of in this like um, role of authority because we're medical well, or, and then being like, I don't know, I feel under pressure to then respond you're like to the, it the wise, and like know about it and have something useful to say. You're like the wise, um, the wise person of the village, you know, the person that people go to for a, a balance. I mean, not what, at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> I mean, people should not be doing that. Should not be coming well, to what, yeah. <laughs> Yes, Tom. <laughs> okay, so shall we hear from Judson Brewer? Um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this interview. My name is Judd Brewer. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist specializing in anxiety and habit change. I'm the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. I'm an associate professor in behavioral and social sciences at the School of Public Health and in psychiatry at the medical school at Brown. Wow. So I think, yeah, you're just the person I want to talk to as we, we talk in this episode about anxiety and coronavirus. Um, and I'd love to start there, really. What, what's your take on you know, what's happening in the world and how, I guess, how, well, what effect the fear that, that everyone seems to have is having on, on them? Yeah, we're seeing some really interesting things across the globe, I think. One is that, you know, we're seeing this natural fear response uh, kind of blossom into anxiety. And from a, mm. from a very basic uh, standpoint, I think it's, you know, it's helpful to know that fear is actually a normal adaptive response. You know, if we step out into the street and we almost get hit by a car, we learn, hey, look both ways before you cross the street next time. Um, this happens, you know, this is actually known all the way back to the most basic of nervous systems, like the sea slug uh, learns the same way that humans do to avoid danger and also to remember where food is. You know, you see food, you eat mm -hmm. the food, and then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So very, very basic learning mechanism. And you can think of this is our survival brain. And then on top of it, more recently, you know, in the last million years or whatever, our brain has layered on this neocortex, which is involved in thinking and planning. This is also helpful for survival, but it helps us in a different way in the sense that it needs accurate information to be able to think and plan. Here, we don't have a ton of accurate information. You know, how long is this whole thing going to last? You know, there are a bunch of questions that are just unclear. You know, what's the mortality rate? Things like that. So here, our thinking brain says, well, I'm still going to keep trying to think and plan, even if you don't give me accurate information. So if we have fear plus uncertainty, our thinking brain spins those into a yarn of anxiety. Okay. There's another piece to add to this, which is social contagion. So 
Social contagion is just the spread of affect or emotion from one person to another. So we can physically distance ourselves from each other to prevent the spread of a virus or a bacteria or something contagious that's physically contagious. But somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world, right? If, um, from, a, from an emotional contagion standpoint. So it's actually even more contagious. And if we go online and we see a bunch of people freaking out, we're more likely to catch that contagion. And if, you know, the more we do that, <laughs> the, more, the more prone we are to not only catching it, but also spreading it to others. So you, you wrote this um, great article in the New York Times, um, what's called Brain Hacks to, to help you get through coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the things you mentioned in that was when you're talking to patients, you, you explain this to them. Is, is, is the explanation we just heard, is that, is that, is that sort of roughly what, what you give to, to patients? Or is there a way that, I guess what I want from you is like, you tell me what to say and I'll say it to my next patient. <laughs> we'll see if that, how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> So I think, I think wisdom is much more useful in this case than knowledge. So knowledge can inform wisdom, but at, if we understand why, you know, like why I say something like this, then it can be helpful. The way I think of this, and this is not just with coronavirus anxiety, this is with every patient that walks in my clinic, I start by trying to really understand where they are and how their mind's working. And so for, exam- for anxiety and worry, for example, typically people are caught up in these worry habit loops. So fear as that trigger might trigger some worry and that worry as a mental behavior makes them feel like they're doing something, even if worrying's not actually fixing the problem and might actually be making the anxiety worse. So the first thing I do is really try to kind of understand where they're coming from. This can happen in 20 seconds. You know, I'm sure uh, GPs don't have very much time with their patients. You can help them map out, you know, okay, what's the trigger? Uh, worries that mental behavior. So you've already got that piece. And then, you know, what's the result of the worry? Does it actually help things or fix things? The trigger is the least important part of the equation. Many of my patients who come in with generalized anxiety disorder can't identify triggers, so that's not even as important. The important piece is being able to see the worry as a behavior and then also see what the result is and because that's actually what changes behavior. You know, Brains actually work through this reward-based learning process that I mentioned earlier. It's actually the reward that drives future behavior. So if I can help my patient map out a worry habit loop and help them see really clearly that worry isn't helping them, this can actually help them step out of the behavior. So that's what I would say to you as a GP or any GP, help your patients map these habit loops out. It's, it's actually relatively straightforward. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? Yeah, so often people say to me, but I was just sitting on the sofa watching TV and then it started, mm-hmm. as in, you know, it can't, it can't be anxiety because there wasn't a trigger. What what? What's, I mean, are they right or, or is there some other explanation? No, there are many, many people that come to me and say, you know, yeah. I don't know what the trigger of my anxiety was. Going and looking for the trigger is a black hole, especially for people with generalized anxiety disorder. They're on the far end of the spectrum, but this can happen for anybody. They're just sitting there on the couch, minding their own business, and then suddenly mm. they get worried. Sometimes this can be triggered by a thought that's so fleeting that they don't even notice it. Sometimes it can be triggered by an environmental cue that they haven't noticed. There can be many things that trigger worry. So what I say there is don't worry about what caused it. Um, So forget the why, focus on the what. Oh, what does this feel like in my body? And we can actually take some deep breaths or we can get really curious. Oh, is it on the right side or the left side of my body? And so we can actually tap into the, the curious awareness. And that curiosity itself 
feels better than the anxiety and can help us calm down. So we can actually replace it with what I call the bigger, better offer, because that's what our brain's always looking for. It's going to make decisions based on what, whether something's more rewarding or not. So if that curiosity feels better than the anxiety, we can start tipping ourselves in the direction toward being more curious. And then I would just say rinse and repeat. Do that over and over and over, many, short moments many times throughout the day. Yeah, and I guess probably we can can we do a bit of that for ourselves, you know, to keep ourselves well if we're noticing we're getting a bit fraught with all this? <laughs> I would say that's a great place to start because if we can map it out for ourselves, then we can yeah. use our own experience as an example for our patients and we're going to develop a really good empathic relationship with them because they're going to be mm. like, oh, my GP isn't, you know, isn't Superman or Superwoman. They're normal like mm. me and they can relate to mm. what I'm talking about. So I think that's a mm. great place to start. I mean, sometimes it's helpful, though, isn't it? I can think of a lot of times I've gone home and just worried about a patient or a decision I've made, and um, but probably that's been quite useful. I, I kind of reflect back on that. I think it's probably quite useful because then I, I call them up or, you know. So let's, let's dive into that because my labs actually yeah. studied this. This is really, really important. My, my PhD advisor used to have this phrase uh, where he'd say, true, true, and unrelated. You have to be really careful when you're doing an experiment to make sure you're not observing something that's true and that you have a theory that's also about why something's working that's also true, but they're, they are not necessarily causally connected. And I have, uh, I have a number, tons of people come to me and say, well, if I don't worry about this, maybe I'm not going to get my work done or I'm not going to solve a problem or whatever. So what we do know scientifically is that when people are anxious, the thinking part of their brain goes offline. So we're not actually better at thinking or solving problems when we're anxious. It just feels like, you know, when, if we worry, and especially the more we worry, the more likely we are to come up with a solution and assume, because I worried, I came up with that solution. But it could be true, I worried, true, I came up with a solution, but completely unrelated, just because I was worrying all the time. You know, if you worry 50% of the time, 50% of the time you're gonna make a false association between coming up with a solution and worry. Um, what I would also suggest is this is where things like mindfulness training come in, which help us step out of those worry habit loops. If we can step out of those, and there are several studies now showing that mindfulness can actually pe help people be more creative. So I would suggest that mindfulness actually helps with problem solving more than worrying does. Oh, well that, you, just, you just destroyed my, um, my self-justification for, <laughs> for worrying about it. <laughs> it sounds right. But um, another, another big feature of the coronavirus has been the, the sort of barrage of information. You know, mm -hmm. every day we're getting sent so many emails, there's so many guidelines. It's, it's, it is impossible to keep up with them, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but that, that, that can be quite overwhelming. You can feel quite, I guess, that you're not keeping up. Any tips for us on that? Yeah, so here I would start by saying, okay, let's understand how our minds work. And, and our brains are actually treating the news cycle like a slot machine right now, because you check the news, you know, no big news, no big news, no big news, and suddenly there's a big headline. That's like pulling the lever on a slot machine, not winning, not winning, and then you win. That's the most reinforcing type of learning known in science. It's called intermittent reinforcement, which is just a fancy term for random rewards, right? We don't know when we're gonna win. We don't know when there's gonna be another big headline. So just knowing that is really important so we don't inadvertently set ourselves up for getting addicted to checking the news because that in itself can make us feel anxious. Um, the second piece is, so with that, a tip would be 
check the news twice a day. Don't check it more than twice a day. For the majority of us, like 99% of us, we don't need to be checking the news more than once or twice a day. That helps us kind of be prepared, not go in looking for that big headline, but knowing, wow, you know, there's a lot going on in the news right now. We can actually get that um, once or twice a day and we'll be fine. The second piece that we can do is just check in with ourselves and say, well, what am I getting <laughs> when I'm constantly checking the news? There's a lot of news that isn't very happy right now. You know, this isn't all good news. Most of it's not good news. So when we go on there, we can actually catch some of that social contagion by reading a story that's, that's terrible. You know, like, oh, wow, this was a you know, story of struggle, another story of struggle. Um, wow. And then we walk away from that, not paying, not noticing that we've actually caught some of that, that emotional contagion from reading the article. So here I would say, ask yourself, what am I getting when we do check the news so that we can help our brain see really clearly, wow, this is actually making me more anxious. And if we can help ourselves see that really clearly, we're less likely to perpetuate that behavior in the future because our brain says, eh, well, it's not really doing it for me. The other thing I would say is do not check the news before you go to bed. Do not. It is not helpful. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to be harder to sleep. Yes, I can um, vouch for that. Yeah, the <laughs> 10 o'clock news, the BBC 10 o'clock news, um, 40 minutes of, <laughs> of misery uh, followed by an hour thinking about it lying in bed at night. So their 10 o'clock news, yeah. I would challenge the BBC to make all of that good news. <laughs> if you want to help the population's health, <laughs> make yeah, the 10 yeah. o'clock news all good news and let people go to sleep that way. And then measure to see if it helps, helps, the, helps everybody sleep better. My guess is it would. That was so good. That I, I feel like a bit of speak. I feel like I need to go back and listen to it like two or three more times. Oh, it was thank so you. good. It was. Um, it was. I feel. I feel very seen. Yeah. It, it kind of all resonated yeah, it so much. It was great. And then since that interview, which was about a week ago, I've stopped watching the news and yeah, sleeping like a log. It's great. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> have you written into the BBC? I have. Change the ton of news. Yes, exactly. I think they I, obviously they'll be listening to this a new public this podcast and they, they will be um, they'll be changing things any, any day now. <laughs> um, so there's a lot, lot of like great like, phrases and great tips there. And, and I think my favourite was that you know someone can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world. Um, and if that is the case, then I think my brain is just covered in snot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what about your brain, Navjoy? Is yours a bit cleaner? Oh, no, mine's like dripping with Qatar. And um, <laughs> um, so that whole interview was like a powerful <laughs> argument for getting off Twitter um, during this um, period yeah. of time and maybe stop watching the news um, as well. I, I just thought, yeah, there was so much there that was very um, resonant. And um, one of the things that it did make me think of in terms of you know, your question about managing information, information overload. So as GPs, I think we're all trying to keep up to date with like the latest guidelines and all the kind of missives and directives that are coming out about what we need to be doing. And I guess what it kind of made me think was um, actually a lot of a lot of this. I mean, there are obviously practicalities around um, how to set up your delivery of services and new things that we're learning about that and about you know this virus itself but actually a lot of what we're doing is is stuff that 
probably we can tap into like the clinical skills that we have already and manage. So assessing whether someone's sick and needs to go into hospital um, and doing advanced care planning and, um, you know, all of that. I think that one thing I've definitely noticed is that there's this sense of like, I don't know anything and I need to kind of read the latest guidelines so that I can manage, I don't know, some specific aspect of this. And I think that interview, I mean, this was not my core, my key take home message, but like that interview has really, that really struck a chord in terms of thinking actually how much of um, everything that we're kind of receiving, like, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff and, and hearing the signal and all the noise. And I think that um, definitely kind of sort of, you know, it's a strong argument for just being a bit um, wiser and more kind of uh, trying to do more kind of curation. And it's a good message in terms of, you know, working at the BMJ about, you know, what are we putting out and, and how much of that is is useful. And obviously, um, yeah, I got I got told to, to, to go for wisdom rather than knowledge. Mm. So, I, so I felt I like... I wrote that down. Yeah. <laughs> While, while, during yeah, yeah. the interview while I was listening I was like hmm yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> wisdom's more useful than knowledge uh, someone needs to tell uh, no <laughs> tell, I was going to say someone should tell the BMJ what? that <laughs> no. <laughs> what <laughs> um, I think you make such a good point Navjoy about um, kind of remembering that we have a lot of skills already and a lot of things that we have been using in our everyday practice for a very long time that we don't need to necessarily relearn or reread, but that we just need to maybe adapt to the new way that we're all working. So one of the things I'm thinking about a lot is how can I kind of help my patients with anxiety, with their own feeling of kind of loneliness they might be experiencing like I am working from home and just how everybody has lost this social contact. And so how can I um, address that? And as you say, like we've been doing this in person when we sit down with folks for a very long time. And I really liked what Jed had to say about kind of moving to asking people, what does it feel like? And encouraging them to approach their anxiety from a perspective of curiosity and self-exploration, which I know sounds crunchy, but I think it's useful. And, And if this curiosity and examination of how their body's feeling and how their mind is feeling replaces the bad feeling of anxiety, then that's great. And what other things can people do to give themselves a new way of feeling? Um, And the thing that came to mind for me was exercise. Um, And just like, if you can physically get out of that space, mentally get out of that space, go get some fresh air. um, I wonder if that's, you know, part and parcel of that kind of um, curiosity about the way that and your body is I guess is for feeling. some people that is like a form of mindfulness, isn't it? When you go for a run, that's when you feel like you're stripped away from all the other crap that's going on in your brain. Um, yeah. So one thing, one thing I did since that interview, which because I, I wasn't aware of uh, habit loops or mapping out habit loops, and so I tried this out. 
of a patient who was wow. very anxious about wow. um, their enduring symptoms of that they'd had coronavirus and, and was were still symptomatic, but actually the problem was was actually their their anxiety and 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 subsequent response to that, um, and it worked really well. It was uh, it was nice. Um, so we we got well. Um, so so the. The, there was a trigger. I probably shouldn't tell you what the trigger is. It might reveal the patient a bit too too much. Um, and then there was the the feeling of anxiety. And then there was the the, the subsequent um, sort of deterioration in their mood and and knock on effects of that. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> um, when I asked you know about the reward mechanism and whether whether they'd looked into that, um, they go, oh yeah. And then I go and do my mindfulness, uh, <laughs> my Headspace app. And <laughs> So I was like, oh, well, maybe you should have some drugs then. <laughs> I didn't really have any. You know, he, he'd already come up with the answer uh, that, I, that was in my mind. So I was a bit lost at that point. So maybe I need to call Judd back and ask, um, <laughs> ask for some follow-up. Advice. Let's get him back on again. He was great. So uh, I think we've run out of time. Uh, thanks to Judd and Monica, and thank you, Jenny and Navjoy. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. If you're enjoying Deep Breath In, please rate us on your podcast app and subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. If you want to get in touch, use the hashtag Deep Breath In or email practice at bmj.com. Just got time for Deep Breath Out, which is our housekeeping slot where we share the things that keep you grounded. So far, we've had a poem and the sounds of some bees. And today it's uh, Jenny's turn. Over to you, Jenny. Yeah. So today I'm going to be playing a clip from my favorite podcast. Deep Breath In. It's called Mom Rage. And it's... (laughs) A bit weird. (laughs) Other than Deep Breath In. (laughs) Um, I'm playing a clip from Mom Rage, a podcast for your best and worst selves, which is recorded by Amelia Morris and Eden Lepecki. And this is a clip of Eden Lepecki reading a passage from a new book, Uncanny Valley, a memoir by Anna Wiener, who writes about her experience working for the first time in Silicon Valley. Here's Eden Lepecki. Unfortunately for me, I liked my inefficient life. I liked listening to the radio and cooking with excessive utensils, slivering onions, detangling wet herbs, 
long showers and stoned museum wandering. I liked riding public transportation, watching strangers talk to their children, watching strangers stare out the window at the sunset and at photos of the sunset on their phones. I like taking long walks to purchase onigiri in Jap- Japantown or taking long walks with no destination at all. Folding the laundry, copying keys, filling out forms, phone calls. I even liked the post office, the predictable discontent of bureaucracy. I liked full albums, flipping the record, long novels with minimal plot, minimalist novels with minimal plot. Engaging with strangers, getting into it, closing down the restaurant, having one last drink. I liked grocery shopping, perusing the produce, watching everyone chew in the bulk aisle. Warm laundry, radio, waiting for the bus. I could get frustrated, overextended, overwhelmed, uncomfortable. Sometimes I ran late. But these banal inefficiencies, I thought they were luxuries, the mark of the unencumbered. Time to do nothing, to let my mind run anywhere, to be in the world. At the very least, they made me feel human. The the fetishized life without friction. What was it like? An unending shuttle between meetings and bodily needs? A continuous productive loop? Charts and data sets? It wasn't to me an aspiration. It was not a prize.